You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 112. Today's episode is all about concussion prevention strategies. So there's a few different types of concussion prevention strategies I'm going to talk about. We have primary concussion prevention, we have secondary concussion prevention, and then we have tertiary concussion prevention. Primary concussion prevention is all about preventing the injury from happening. Can we have specific protective equipment, certain rule changes in place, different ways of doing things that we can prevent a concussion from happening. Can we, for example, increase the strength of our necks? Can we wear certain types of helmets? Can we wear mouth guards? Can we, you know, prevent the concussion from actually taking place? Secondary prevention is trying to increase early detection to prevent uh, a more severe outcome from happening or to prevent repeat injuries from happening. So this comes down to, you know, can we educate people more? Can we have better testing, better detection, better tools in place to be able to pick these injuries up? And then we have tertiary prevention, which is trying to reduce the symptoms of an injury that has already taken place. So things like PCS, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, post-concussion syndrome, that type of thing. Can we do things to help or prevent those from taking place? Or if those are already taking place, what can we do to mitigate uh, that, that issue and make things better? So I'm going to talk about each of those prevention strategies Uh, separately and I'm going to first start obviously with primary prevention and we'll just move through and into tertiary and talk about ways that we can um, help concussions that have already happened, help recognize concussions that may have occurred and so on. So first thing I want to talk about is helmets. All right. So I'm going to move through this pretty quickly because I'm just going to give you kind of the gist of it. I don't think we necessarily need to break down all the literature on this, but helmets. Helmets are not designed to prevent concussion. Concussion injury comes from the brain moving inside the skull. So putting a device on the outside of the skull does not prevent the brain from moving inside of the skull. If we also think about this in a different way, the brain can get concussed from not even being hit in the head, right? You can have a whiplash type mechanism where the head moves back and forth, the brain moves inside the skull, and that is enough to cause concussion injury. So even if you're wearing a helmet, and you get hit in the body, and your head moves and snaps back and forth, your brain is still moving inside the skull, and you can still get a concussion injury. So the helmet on the outside of the head does nothing to protect the brain on the inside of the head. If you're wearing a big football helmet, and you get hit, boom, hard by a tackle, your head is still going to move like this, and the brain inside is still going to move back and forth. Concussion is from acceleration and deceleration of the brain. You can put whatever you want on the outside of that head and that head is still going to move, right? So it's acceleration, right? Helmets are meant to prevent skull fractures because what they do is they dissipate the force. Now, I've talked about this in previous episodes, but I'll break it down again. Think about a baseball player standing at the plate to bat. They have a helmet on the side of their head. If a ball, a baseball is coming at them and it hits them right in the temple. That is a large amount of force in a hard object hitting in a very small area 
on the skull. So that, that really hard object being thrown at a very high rate of speed hits the skull and then boom, you can crack the skull. But if you have a helmet on, what it does is it dissipates the force. So now the ball hits the helmet and the helmet may crack, but the force that actually hits your head is now covered over a broad area, right? So rather than being just the size of a ball hitting in this very small focal area, which can lead to skull fracture, the ball hits the helmet and then the force that gets transmitted to the head is dissipated over a large surface area. So it can prevent the skull from being fractured. That's what a helmet is for and that's why a helmet should still be worn. But the, the brain inside the skull can still, when that ball hits, is still gonna move the head back and forth and the brain is still gonna slosh around inside the skull. So helmets do not prevent concussion. This has been studied for years and they have been found to not reduce concussion injuries whatsoever. And then people ask me, what about those little soccer headbands? And what about the little scrum caps in rugby? And what about any of these devices? None of them have been found to significantly reduce head acceleration and or reduce the incidence of concussion. So helmets do not prevent concussions. Helmets prevent skull fractures. Okay, next up, mouth guards. Now, mouth guards... Um, is one that when, when I was a kid, we used to say, oh, you got to wear your mouth guards because that's to prevent concussion injuries. And it wasn't until I started getting into the concussion space and researching this as a clinician and figuring all this out that I don't understand how that would work. Because of the mouth guard protecting the teeth, I could see that if there was a force that came straight up and the jaw closed shut, there may be some reduction in acceleration through the jaw. And so mouth guards were shown to prevent orofacial injuries, teeth injuries, but they weren't ever shown to prevent concussions. However, recently, there's been some evidence that's come out that have found that, that people wearing mouth guards have a reduction in concussion risk. And in fact, there was a study by Chisholm in 2019 that they found that over-the-counter or off-the-shelf mouth guards, just kind of those boil-and-bite mouth guards, was associated with a 69% lower odds of suffering a concussion, which was significant. So it seems like there is some limited evidence that shows that potentially mouth guards may have some small protective effect against concussion. Now again, there's limited evidence because previous evidence has shown that there was really no effect. There was recently a meta-analysis that kind of took all the literature too, and they showed a slight kind of non-significant effect towards mouth guards being somewhat protective against concussion as well. So there's something that may help in a very minimal way. Uh, facial protection, such as wearing uh, like a shield on a helmet, does not have any, uh, no evidence to show that it can reduce the likelihood of getting a concussion. Neck strengthening, Okay, neck strengthening programs. This has become this thing people have seen like, you know, the iron neck and they talk about different rehab exercises to prevent concussions. The problem is neck strength does not equal neck stiffness. Okay, let's think about this. Concussion is from acceleration, deceleration of the head and more specifically the brain inside the head. There was early research that was done actually way back in the 40s that started this whole process that found that if we could stabilize the head and neck and not allow there to be any movement whatsoever. So in other words, you've increased the stiffness of the, of the neck. And if you're to hit the head, but the neck can't move, then there's no acceleration of the head. If there's no acceleration of the head, there's no acceleration of the brain, there's no concussion. So if you're able to keep the neck 100% rigid, if the neck was a rigid object and you were to get hit in the head, you would be you would protect against concussion. So this translated into people understanding that well maybe we should do neck strengthening 
because if we strengthen the neck, then we can keep it stiffer. The problem is that in a game scenario, you're often unaware that you're gonna get hit. And so this generally falls flat on its face. We've seen time and time again, study after study after study, that finds that neck strength has no correlation with the number of high magnitude impacts that somebody gets. It has no correlation with the risk of concussion that somebody has. So even though it makes sense theoretically, of course, if we could have a really strong neck and the head gets hit, then, then we can protect the brain because there's no movement. The problem is in order to do that, you actually have to have the neck under active contraction. But in order to have your neck under active contraction, you have to be aware that there's a hit coming. And if you're not aware that there's a hit coming, you're not gonna have your neck completely contracted as you play a sport. Generally, the people that get concussed in sports and other types of injuries are unaware that there's about to be uh, some, some sort of hit or contact. This is why neck strength by itself doesn't work. Neck strength paired with game awareness may, may be helpful because now you know the person's coming, you're able to stiffen up and get ready for a potential impact. That could have some effect on reducing your risk of concussion. But neck strength by itself uh, has been shown not to have any effects on concussion incidents. Uh, playing surfaces, there's been some uh, looking at whether or not it's safer to play on a hard surface versus a soft surface, uh, and there's really no evidence that way, one way or another, so we don't really know there. Educational programs for athletes, coaches, and school officials have been shown to increase knowledge, but they haven't been shown to change reporting behavior. So one thought is, well, if we just educated athletes... Uh, about the risks of concussion, maybe they would be more likely to play safer. Or maybe if we told coaches about certain things, they would be less likely to involve athletes in certain drills. Just having the knowledge and the education does not necessarily translate into reduced concussions. Now, this is mixed. So there was a study, another one in 2019 by Shanley. Some evidence shows that head heads-up football training can reduce concussion rates by as much as 33%. So this is just teaching people how to tackle properly can reduce concussion by up to 33%. Other previous studies though have found that there was no difference. So again, we see a lot of mixed evidence in this picture, so fairly inconclusive at this point in time. Next up is rule modifications. For those just joining, we are talking about concussion prevention strategies. Rule modifications such as banning spearing, banning hits to the head or unsafe hits, uh, banning helmet to helmet contact in football. Um, we have found by changing the rules in younger kids for hockey, for example, by re removing body checking from hockey at younger age groups, we've been able to significantly reduce concussion risk. That's by removing contact completely out of the game. But rule modifications such as Hockey Canada, for example, introduced um, a zero tolerance policy against hits to the head. And they found that when they implemented that rule, there was the same amount of concussions before that rule and just as much as there was after that rule. So it actually had no effect on concussion risk whatsoever. So it sounds great, but there's actually no change in the concussion risk. Similarly, USA Soccer banned heading for people under a certain age. And the results of that found that it didn't matter because there was the same number of concussions before that rule implementation as after that rule implementation because it's very short-sighted because everyone assumes that concussions in soccer are coming from heading the ball. Concussions in soccer, less than 6% or sorry, less than 7% of concussions, I think it's like 6.5% of concussions in soccer actually come from heading the ball or ball contacting the head. 
75% come from player-to-player -player contact. So just by eliminating heading, they actually had zero effect on concussion risk. So again, it sounds great. Look at what we're doing. We're getting rid of heading in younger ages so that we can prevent concussions. It really doesn't do anything. So any of these rule changes are all more for show than for anything because we actually don't reduce concussion risks. For example, there's been numerous policy changes in the NFL over the past 10 to 15 years, and we've actually had zero reduction in concussion incidents over that time period. Laws and policies such as the Zachary Leistead law in the United States, um, which is basically you know mandating removal of play of a suspected concussion or any of that stuff, increased knowledge, increased awareness around concussion, hasn't done anything to reduce the number of concussions that are happening. So from a primary prevention strategy, there doesn't seem to be anything that's that effective. Mouth guards may have a limited small effect on reducing concussion risk. Helmets don't really have any shown uh, effect of reducing concussions. Neck strength doesn't work by itself. Um, educating players and coaches doesn't work. The best thing it seems to be is eliminating body contact. So if you were to take, let's say, football and change it to flag football, you'd have a significant reduction in concussion risk. That's just how that works, right? The only way to avoid concussion is to avoid getting hit. That seems to be the, the number one takeaway from that one. Let's move on to secondary prevention strategies. This is about early recognition and not allowing a premature return to sport. So we're preventing A, a secondary injury from happening, but we're also recognizing that injury uh, early on. So we have a couple categories here. Athlete education. Right? So if we can teach athletes to report their symptoms, if we can teach coaches to better recognize, if we can um, you know, instill this you know, program of preseason education uh, has been shown to be not enough to be on its own. And that's because most athletes take on this like tough guy mentality of, well, you know, I'm not going to let my team down. I need to be there for my team. So I got hit. Yeah, my head's ringing and I can't see straight and I can't stand up, but I'm going to continue to play, right? So uh, it seems that there's this culture of sport uh, idea and we're finding that just educating athletes has no effect on secondary prevention because they're not necessarily reporting injuries at a greater rate uh, if they've been educated versus if they have not. Coach and trainer education, same kind of thing. We find that by educating coaches and trainers about symptom recognition, about the dangers of concussion, about all of this stuff, it doesn't seem to matter because it still gets kind of perpetuated in this idea of this kind of tough guy mentality. There was a recent study that was that was published on this and they actually, they, they interviewed athletes and they found that a really high percentage of athletes, I can't remember the exact percentage off the top of my head, but a really high percentage of athletes um, reported being pressured by their coach, by their teammates, by their parents to return to sport before they thought they were ready or to hide a concussion injury from, from other people. So we can see that, that there's this wrapper, this concussion, um, this culture of sport issue that is still preventing people from reporting. Appropriate management. So this is returning athletes to play. We know that after concussion, there's this drop in energy that happens, and with that drop in energy comes a period of vulnerability. If you are to get another concussion during that period of vulnerability, it is at least thought that you can get concussed much easier, and it is known that those two injuries can become cumulative, additive. So you can take something that is a concussion, which is also a mild traumatic brain injury. If you suffer a second concussion during that metabolic or vulnerable window, 
that can create a severe brain injury. So that can be a fatal outcome for you. So appropriate management is making sure that we're not letting people go back to their sport until they have gone through the full return to play process and that they're out of that vulnerable period. Now, how do we do that? We can't measure that vulnerable period with the tools that we currently have that are clinically available. So you have to do this in a way that um, based on you know the literature of what kind of correlates with that recovery. We know that symptom recovery does not equal the clinical recovery or the physiologic recovery that we see. So the symptoms may go away. We may think that this concussion is gone, but it's similar to an infection. If you have a bacterial infection of some kind and you are given antibiotics for that, even after the symptoms go away, like let's say you have strep throat, right? And you're given antibiotics. And after a few days of taking antibiotics, your symptoms will actually feel much better. But that doesn't mean the infection is gone. And what does your doctor always tell you to do? Make sure you take all of your antibiotics. It's because even after that phase, you can that that infection can rear back up. You can also develop kind of an antibiotic resistant strain of that. So, I mean, you can't do that in concussion. But what I'm saying is that just because your symptoms go away doesn't mean that the injury is gone. And this is the key element here. So what you have to do from a clinical standpoint is find things that will correlate with a functional or physiologic recovery. So good you know, things to do, baseline testing. Okay, baseline testing is a concept. Baseline testing does not mean just doing a computer test. Baseline testing means testing a variety of different facets of concussion injury. Balance, reaction time, visual tracking and processing speeds, um, postural sway, uh, neurocognitive function, visual tracking and motor speed, like all of these different things go into because they're affected after concussion injury. But they also correlate better with the functional recovery of concussion than symptoms do. Symptoms tend to go away after the first seven to 10 days. A lot of these functional pieces aren't back until three to four weeks. And that three to four weeks, coincidentally, is the same thing as the metabolic recovery. So we can use these tools to our advantage to figure out when a person is functionally recovered. We can't just purely look at their symptom resolution and say that that's when they've recovered. So something that can prevent a premature return to play is having a really good baseline in place. And baseline means that you've tested before the injury. So we test everybody in a healthy state at the start of the season. Everyone does balance, reaction time, memory, concentration, whatever. So we know how you function in the event you get a concussion. Then we can utilize this information. Once your symptoms go away and you've done all the return to play steps, we can utilize this information now to retest you and see how you do. Is your balance back to normal? Is your reaction time back to normal? All of these things. And that gives us an idea as to whether or not you are ready to return safely to your sport. So that's a secondary prevention strategy. Laws and policy changes. Uh, there's legislation. It's kind of remained to be seen yet whether or not this is doing anything to prevent uh, serious outcomes after. So various, I think every state in the United States has laws against uh, returning an athlete to sport. They need some sort of medical clearance letter and there's a whole bunch of things. A lot of them will mandate having baseline testing in place. A lot of it's just neurocognitive testing, which by itself has been shown to be uh, not effective. You need a more comprehensive package in order to have a, a really effective testing protocol. So don't just think you're doing a computer test and that's good enough. You need more than that. Um, but so far the laws and policy changes don't seem um, to, uh, we don't know if they're having any effect on, on as a secondary prevention um, strategy. Tertiary prevention, 
Uh, this is preventing the long-term outcomes and also treating the symptoms of somebody who's already suffered a concussion. So those with PCS, you're in the tertiary prevention. We're now just trying to get you back to normal. We're trying to prevent long-term sequelae or any long, any more long-term sequelae from happening or prevent somebody who's currently symptomatic from having long-term sequelae. So we're not necessarily trying to prevent a further injury. We're trying to prevent the outcome, the poor outcome from happening. So this comes down to timely access to care. Um, the So there's been a number of studies recently. I'll just go through some of them. So Anthony Contos, 2020, published in JAMA Neurology. They found that one of the number one predictors of recovery was how quickly they were in to see a trained healthcare professional. So here's the key points. Um, I'm just going to blow this up because it's a little bit small on my screen. The question is, do patients who receive clinical care sooner after concussion recover faster? In this cross-sectional study of 162 adolescent and young adult athletes with concussion, those who initiated clinical care earlier within seven days recovered faster and were less likely to have a prolonged recovery than those who initiated care later. So basically coming in within the first week significantly impacted your chances of recovery uh, greater than if you were to come in two weeks later or three weeks later. So getting in in that first week to see somebody who knows what they're doing that can guide you in the right path is super, super important. So the meaning per this study, early initiation of care after concussion may be warranted to expedite uh, recovery time. So I'm just going to read a quote from this. In this study, athletes who were evaluated within a week of injury recovered in a mean of 20 days faster than those athletes that were seen two to three weeks post-injury. One reasonable explanation for this difference is that earlier initiation of active rehabilitation strategies, including exertion progression and opportunity to start structured physical therapies like vision, uh, vestibular, and cervical, which is the neck rehabilitation. So early care, early rehab, early education is so important for recovery. So as a tertiary prevention strategy, getting in to see a trained professional and one specifically that knows how to do this rehab stuff uh, can be extremely helpful in uh, improving recovery, improving outcomes, okay? Other studies that kind of go along this same path, Martinez in 2020 published in the Archives of Physiotherapy. Here's the conclusion. I'm going to read this quote. Positive findings during vestibular testing in the presence of cognitive impairment identified at initial evaluation were associated with increased odds of delayed clearance. Our data support the mediating influence of time to examination. So basically, if the earlier you're able to get in, you're able to kind of mediate that effect. Prognosis of delayed recovery may have greater utility when symptoms are captured and tests performed early after the onset of injury. Eagle in 2020 from the Journal of Neurosurgery and Pediatrics. This study adds to the literature by emphasizing the importance of early clinical care to quicker recovery and concussion and providing more evidence to support current consensus guidelines that advocate for a short period of relative rest followed by graded sub-symptom activity. And then a study that we did with our data from Complete Concussion Management, we analyzed there was 1,213 athletes, so one of the largest studies that's ever been done to look at this we found that days between injury and initial assessment was one of the strongest predictors of recovery time. So here's the conclusion. Time from sport-related concussion to initial assessment significantly predicted time to discharge. With those presenting sooner, it's experiencing a faster discharge. So again, it seems that coming in within that first week is like your best chance for a better outcome. So if you know anyone who's just had a concussion, get them in to find a concussion specialized clinic. That's what you need to do. That's what they need to do. That gives them the best chance of recovery. And 
um, and early rehab is, is, is super important as well, like any injury. So here's the summary, okay? So we have three different types of prevention. We have primary prevention, secondary prevention, tertiary prevention. I'm just gonna summarize. In terms of primary prevention, the best prevention is not getting hit, right? It doesn't matter what you wear equipment-wise. Mouth guards may have some small protective effect. Helmets don't matter. Headgear doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you put on your head. It does not matter whatsoever because the brain is moving inside the skull and there's nothing that can reduce that acceleration enough to be able to have any impact. Neck strengthening has been shown to not work. It doesn't protect in a game scenario because you're often unaware the hit is coming. You need a sufficient amount of notice. Uh, there's also some evidence, I didn't talk about it, but there's some limited evidence that doing some vision training exercises may be protective and it may just be that game awareness thing, right? Being able to move your eyes quickly, analyze the scenario uh, may have some sort of protective effects. They found that athletes who did vision training were actually more protected than those who didn't. So that there may be something there. But the big thing is taking out contact from sport. If you want to really reduce uh, concussion risk, remove contact from the sport. I mean, that's not feasible for a lot of sports, but that's just the reality situation. Secondary prevention strategies, better recognition, education, all of this stuff doesn't really matter. It seems that the best is um, you know, being able to recognize the signs and symptoms and having some objective tests like baseline testing to be able to better remove people from the sport. Tertiary prevention all comes down to being able to get into care early on in the process, right? The earlier you can get in for initiating rehab and treatment, the better. And that is it for concussion prevention strategies. Uh, so I'll see you guys next week. Uh, I don't think we have a topic yet for next week, but that uh, will, I'll announce it before, before we do. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.